Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen Haupt, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Meany from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Welcome, Dr. Joseph. Hi. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the most common questions that the NCBC hotline gets. Is it a phone that people call or is it an email? How does the hotline work, first of all? So sure. People reach us through our website, so ncbcenter.org, and ask a question. And you can either send an email or you can get the phone number and call. If, uh, if it's during normal business hours, then it goes to the ethicist on duty for that day. Uh, if it's beyond, you know, 5 p.m. on a weekday or on the weekends, then we have ethicists who are on duty for emergency calls. Uh, you know, so we ask people not to call at 2 in the morning unless it really is an emergency, but, but if they can call in the middle of the night, if, if it truly is. And we do get those calls as well. So uh, basically, it's both email or, or telephone. And of course, if it's an emergency, basically telephone. So people basically call like if they're facing like a question that they have to come up with an answer, then they don't know what to do. So they'll call and say like, I guess like in terms of like medical treatment, is this moral or is this not? Is that generally the idea of it? That's right. So we always provide a disclaimer, right? We, we can't do telemedicine and uh, and we don't give legal advice either. But, but what we try to do is help discern with the people the Catholic perspective on the situation they're facing. Usually it's an ethical dilemma. Usually it's a medical dilemma, you know, a medical decision that needs to be taken. And they need to look at the circumstances, try to understand what's going on. And sometimes it's very emotional mm-hmm. and very difficult because a loved one is is in the hospital and, and needs care or maybe needs to have care withdrawn, life support withdrawn or something like that. So, you know, really difficult issues and being able to talk with someone who's trained, someone who's pretty objective and, and not in that situation can be very helpful. Sometimes like whole families will be fighting over issues. And and that's kind of the, the nightmare for the hospital staff, they tell us. The worst situation is when, you know, half the family wants this and the other half wants that and they don't know what to do, et cetera. And so sometimes we'll be called in just to kind of give the Catholic perspective, try to understand what's going on and, and you know, also to pray for them and, and try to help them through that hard time. But yeah, so very interesting questions come in. Yeah, I think you mentioned that there was a lot of end-of-life questions um, when we were talking before this. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the most common ones in that area and how you respond to them? Yeah, so it's true that the Catholic Church, you know, we believe in defensive life from conception to natural death, and uh, there are many fewer people who are confused about abortion or beginning-of-life issues because you know, the Church is very clear about where we stand on that. At the end of life, we're also clear about euthanasia and assisted suicide being completely against that. But there are a lot of options at the end of life, a lot of different experimental treatments that are possible, a lot of different life support that's possible, a lot of different things that you know have a subjective component in terms of how the person themselves experiences them. And, and some people feel, you know, gosh, I just can't stand this treatment. And am I really morally required to do so? And so there are a lot of more questions that arise between what is ordinary and what is extraordinary. And and that's a distinction that's made in, in Catholic ethics, Catholic moral theology, where we say, you know, the ordinary means of preserving our lives are obligatory. So you're, you're, you're required on pain of sin um, not to commit suicide and to take care of your health. So, you know, as... Um, as some would say, you know, if, if you're smoking heavily or you're drinking heavily, et cetera, you're damaging your health, uh, you're actually committing a sin. So you have, have a responsibility to do the ordinary things. But, but at the end of life, 
there are a lot more questions that arise. Is this truly ordinary or is it becoming extraordinary because this person is so fragile, so close to death? Do we really need to do this, that, and the other? And, and it, it can be a real question, a real, real quandary. So we try to help people with that. About half of the questions that come in are these kind of end-of-life issues, particularly as, as individuals are coming close to death. And even like nutrition and hydration at the end, um, you know, obviously food and water are ordinary means. Mm-hmm. But if the person is actively dying, do you need to insert a feeding tube? You know, if they're no longer able to swallow, et cetera. It, it really depends on the circumstances. And so, again, that's one area where our ethicists can be very, very uh, helpful. And there, there can be a lot of, you know, constructive dialogue and, and understanding. And people just, you know, feel very guilty if they feel like they've made the wrong decision. And so it's, it's kind of very comforting for many people, and including pastors will, will reach out to us, priests saying, you know, I'm just not sure what to counsel people in this specific circumstance. And, and the circumstances definitely matter as to whether something is ordinary or extraordinary. So we, uh, we field a lot of those questions and help a lot of people get peace of mind that, you know, this is truly what, what a Catholic perspective is on these things. What do, can you go back to the feeding tube example? Like when would a feeding tube, if someone is actively dying, is that a situation? Like, can you just give an example of when it would be ordinary or if it's ever extraordinary, how that would work? Correct. Yeah. So this was a big debate in the 1990s. Okay. And, and there were a lot of people saying, look, um, the use of a feeding tube is an artificial means to keep a person alive. And it should be considered something like a ventilator, some kind of external support, and could be withdrawn without any problem. And the church looked at that and said, no, 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 no. All right. St. John Paul II in particular, and he responded to the U.S. Catholic bishops because it was a major debate here within the United States. Should, you know, a person be given a feeding tube or not? And there were a lot of arguing that, well, not necessarily, but then they were dying of dehydration or or malnutrition. And so he responded very clearly that uh, whether with a feeding tube or other artificial means— or just regular feeding, nutrition and hydration are ordinary means. However, there are some specific circumstances where that can become extraordinary. And so uh, the clearest example is if the person is no longer able to absorb the food or the water. So say their intestines have shut down to the point where if if you're giving them food, it's just piling up and it could actually hasten their death. As opposed to, you know, it's not performing the function that it's there to do to, to sustain their lives. Uh, if the person's kidneys have shut down such that they can't process, you know, the, new, the, the hydration, the water, again, that those, those circumstances would make it optional, maybe even contraindicated, right? Because it would actually speed up their deaths to do that. Uh, if the person is in the dying process to where you know, it's, it's clear that they're going to be dying within the next 24, 48 hours, um, and there's a burden to inserting a feeding tube or continuing with, with the feeding and, and the hydration. Uh, and it's clear the person is not going to die of dehydration in the next two days. You know, uh, And, and so you're actually reducing the burdens on them without causing their death. And, and that's kind of the key point, right, is, is that no person should die of dehydration or malnutrition that can be prevented from doing so. And, and so we, as a, as a church, just don't want to see that happen. It's considered ordinary means to keep that person alive. However, there, there could be specific circumstances where that becomes extraordinary because it's not really performing its function. Unfortunately, there are a lot of circumstances where people are being dehydrated to death, and it's kind of a stealth euthanasia. And, you know, or, or they could be fed, but they're just not because it's inconvenient 
in some way. And that, that clearly would be a problem. So we, we definitely have to, to distinguish the cases there, but it's, it's key to understand that in almost all circumstances, it is ordinary care. I mean, it's preserving the person's life. And we never want them to be dying of dehydration or dying of malnutrition. But in certain specific circumstances, it, it could be justified. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting that, I mean, it makes sense that if your body isn't able to actually absorb the food that it wouldn't actually be helpful, but it's good, I guess, to be able to have that resource where you can ask in this circumstance, is this something that's necessary or not? Um, and I think, um, what do you do for people who call like when they say they're not, they don't think they're able to trust their doctors? Like, do you, I think you mentioned that you do run into that, um, circumstance. How do you help them? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a big problem that I think is kind of growing, right, is that the culture of death has kind of seeped into a lot of our institutions, a lot of our medical establishment. And so individuals are are being told one thing by their doctors and they're not exactly sure that that's accurate, you know, that, that they should be withdrawing life support because the patient is going to be dying anyway, you know, et cetera. And they're just not sure if it's true uh, or or if the information that they're being given is is being guided by, you know, insurance or reimbursement or something else besides the Hippocratic Oath and and the pro-life principles that are out there. And so one of the things that they will do is reach out to us and we can't, you know, give them all the medical information, et cetera, but we can certainly give them the principles and let them know that they should be trying to get pro-life doctors to understand, you know, sometimes um, it also comes up with the issue of brain death. Mm-hmm. They're being told that the, their loved one is actually dead and they want to take the organs you know, et cetera. And there's a big debate out there, you know, about whether or not uh, the brain death criteria are properly applied and, and, and how that really works, et cetera. And, and so sometimes they just want to get some very clear principles as to what's going on and, and to try and understand, you know, what they should be doing from a Catholic perspective because they're not really getting good advice just from the medical side. And so we try to help in those circumstances. But it, it's, uh, it's a problem. I, we had one individual, she called us up, and she was told that her mother was dying, that they wanted to withdraw life support because they didn't think she was going to be surviving very long, and there was really no hope of recovery. And so she agreed to withdraw life support. And she thought it was kind of like a do not resuscitate order or something like that. And, you know, that they wouldn't put her on extraordinary machines and the rest of it. And her mother was still alive several days later, and she found out that they were not feeding her, not giving her any hydration. So she was essentially being starved and and dehydrated to death. And she was like, well, wait a second. I I said, you know, life support, but but obviously feed her and and give her nutrition. And they were like, no, 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 that's part of life support, you know, and and we took it all off. This is in California. And so we're like, absolutely, that is completely unacceptable. You need to, you know, force them to do that or, or change her from one institution to another where you can trust the doctors, you know, et cetera. But that's the sort of thing that tends to happen in, in some very bad extreme examples. Well, it seems like in that case too, they're using vague language. Like they're saying life support and then what you think of as life support isn't necessarily what the doctors are thinking of as life support. Correct. Yeah. So, so. Sometimes the, the terminology and even, you know, the pressure that is put on some families. So mm-hmm. they're told you have to make this decision now, you know, in the next hour. And, and they need to process and think and, and figure out what's going on. And, and so sometimes, you know, that's when we get these emergency calls. It's like, we have to make this decision. We don't know what's going on, you know, and, and it's, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we tell them, look, they can't force you. You know, take, take some more time. You, know, you have to. I mean, you know, 
there are true emergencies where they have to make a decision right away. And at that point, you just kind of have to trust that they're going to make the right decision. But a lot of these decisions, there is a little bit of time, even if there is pressure, time pressure being put on them. But um, it it makes a lot of sense to to try and reflect and, and come to a good decision as opposed to just kind of a knee-jerk reaction or just doing whatever you're being proposed. Because again, you know, uh, even even in some Catholic hospital situations, uh, the advice that's given might not be the right advice for that family as, as they're discerning. You know, there's a lot of freedom, particularly when it comes to ordinary and extraordinary means. On the extraordinary side, there's a lot of freedom to choose one way or another. And they should be able to make that informed informed decision. Yeah. And then I believe that you had also mentioned to me earlier that um, you get a lot of calls about different treatments, people calling saying, can I get this vaccine or this medication? And is it related to an abortion derived cell line. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of questions that come up in that area and how you respond? Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly during COVID, there was a huge amount of questions about the vaccines and and the sad fact that all the ones that were available in the United States had some connection to the abortion derived cell lines, either in the production phase or in the testing phase. And, and of course that, that problem is much wider than vaccines. So Mm -hmm. it goes into a lot of different medications. It goes into a lot of different procedures, et cetera, that are, that are being proposed. And so people have been, I think, awakened to the fact that there are some ethical issues out there. And, uh, you know, I just had a, a bishop call, and he was saying, which one of the shingles vaccines has no connection to the abortion-derived cell lines? And it's the Shingrix vaccine that's available. And it's great. You know, it's, it's a wonderful vaccine. It's actually uh, much better in terms of efficacy than the previous one that, that Merck had put out. This is from GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, the Shingrix, and it's wonderful. But again, you need to know uh, mm-hmm. that you should specifically request the one that has no connection with the abortion-derived cell lines. So we get those kind of questions that come in. And then a lot of different, you know, uh, monoclonal antibodies, you know, and, and different uh, procedures that are out there that didn't kind of have embryo connections to them, et cetera, that these kind of questions do arise. And people are, like, concerned as, like, are the drugs that I'm being given you know, somehow tainted ethically, and should I be looking for alternatives? Because generally speaking, there are alternatives, but you have to either do the research yourself or, or reach out to other institutions to find out. And, uh, and so we get called in for some of those questions, definitely. And it's it's important, right? Uh, also to put pressure on the vaccine companies and, and, the, and the pharmaceutical companies, let them know that the abortion-derived cell lines, which are very commonly used, uh, have ethical problems and therefore, you know, people don't want them. And then they want drugs and, and medicines that are coming to them without any kind of connection to abortion. But I think that's a, a, a much longer term struggle. And it's it's necessary to do that. And I think COVID was helpful, right? It, it raised the issue for a lot of people who hadn't even realized it was out there. Uh, now, the problem had been in existence for many, many years, because these abortion drive cell lines started in the 70s. And since then, they've, they've come into a lot of use. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're all over the place. But I think... Um, I think there's there's a lot of progress in terms of alternatives now coming to the market because actually there is a market. The the pro-life, you know, community is large and people are concerned and they're asking questions. And so these these pro-life alternatives are a good thing. And I, I'm glad to see that they're more available. Well, and like you said, I feel like COVID brought that all to the surface where people started talking about it because there was like a new set of vaccines no one had ever heard of. It wasn't like, well, the list from your doctor of all the ones you have to get, and then people go get them and they don't question it. This was like, okay, this is new. Can we get it? Can we not? 
right. and it just brought those questions up. And then once people started asking it, they started realizing there was an issue with other vaccines as well, at least from my general experience of right. talking to other people. Yeah. No, so we get the question frequently about the flu vaccine, which yeah. fortunately, you know, is not grown in any abortion drive cell lines. It's grown, in, generally speaking, in, in chicken eggs, which is great, you know. But uh, again, there are other childhood vaccines that are tainted, you know, with the abortion drive cell lines. So it's it's definitely an important issue. And it's one that I think people are, are more aware of now than they used to be. And I hope the companies in particular are more aware. Certainly the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops you know, the, first of all, they were sending letters of congratulations to GlaxoSmithKline when they, you know, brought out the new line that had no connection, but also for withdrawing some of the bad vaccines and replacing them with better ones uh, that were, you know, ethically much, much superior. So that's, it's a good thing. I think the companies respond to some of that pressure and there's, uh, there's a lot of competition. So if, if they can realize that the pro-life, more ethical vaccines actually have a market to them, uh, that that should kind of guide things, which is good. Yeah, that's awesome. And then I believe that you had also mentioned that you get questions about like IVF and embryos and all of that. Can we talk a little bit about that? It's a new topic for this podcast, but it's one that I think has a lot of, um, well, there's obviously very clear statements of the church on it, but there's also a lot of moral and ethical issues that arise concerning like frozen embryos. So can we just discuss that for a little bit? Since Absolutely. You know about it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I recall very clearly uh, the doctor who was in charge of HLI Croatia back in the day, saying frequently to his audiences in his country, there are more children who die in Croatia from in vitro fertilization than from surgical abortion. That there are more of these embryos that are discarded, you know, from the IVF clinics that are killed because, you know, the, the miscarriage process is so, so extensive when they try to, to implant the embryos were kept in cold storage and then tossed, you know, later on, et cetera. It's, it's an incredibly destructive, terrible technology. I, the thing that we used to, to say so often about it, like any medical procedure where 90% of the patients die would be banned. If you had a heart surgery where 90% of the people died on the, on the operating table, you wouldn't have that heart surgery anymore. You know, if there was a parachute where 90% of the people who tried to, the parachute, it failed, you would ban it. But somehow it doesn't apply to human embryos. 90% of those conceived in vitro are never born. They die or they're kept in cold storage until they die. Uh, and, you know, we just had uh, just recently the, the news about these two twin girls who were born after 30 years in the freezer. It was a historical record because they didn't know how long they could preserve, you know, in, in cold storage, these embryos. And, and this is the first time that 30-year-old embryos have been brought. But we have no idea how bad the consequences are for them in the future of, of having spent, you know, in liquid nitrogen 30 years. And, and, and how much of a, is that going to shorten their lifespan? Is it going to create all kinds of other genetic anomalies with them? All these other problems, it's just, it's ridiculous. So the church has rightfully condemned in vitro fertilization. Unfortunately, many people don't realize it. They don't realize what the Catholic church teaching is. And, and somehow they're thinking, well, it's to overcome infertility. Therefore, it's kind of pro-life. I even ran into a, this was in my HLI days when I was in West Africa, but there was a representative from Planned Parenthood who in that country abortion was illegal, saying, look, we don't provide abortions. In fact, we help with in vitro fertilization. We're pro-life. We're helping children to be born. And it was like, no, 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 no. 
First of all, the whole process of in vitro fertilization kills many more children than it brings to life, but it's an incredible injustice to the infertile couples. It's dangerous. So just that the, the hyperovulation drugs that the mother has to take to get all these different eggs to be harvested is dangerous. So some women die of the hyperovulation syndrome, but the whole process is, is dehumanizing. And then the idea of having a technician conceiving your children in a lab in glass, and then deciding which ones will live, right? Which which one of your children, your human embryos that have been conceived in glass, oh, I don't like that one, toss, you know, uh, oh, this one will keep, you know, and then putting, you know, which ones are going to be implanted, which ones are not going to be implanted. It's just, it's just incredibly, the commodification of the human person. So quality control mm-hmm. applied to human beings, uh, before they're born, prenatal genetic diagnosis, all, the, all these different things. It's, it's ridiculous. And, and it's sadly very, very common because, you know, my wife and I actually suffered from infertility. So we had nine years before our first child. And it's a huge pain and, and, and people get desperate and, and they're hoping to have a child and, and they're very vulnerable to the pressure to go and, and just use whatever means. And, and the IVF people are really good at selling their product. Like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get you a child. They don't tell you what the cost is going to be. Well, they tell you what the cost is going to be financially, which is substantial. But then they, they don't tell you how many children are not going to make it mm-hmm. and, and how many are going to be left in cold storage and what are you going to do with them. And sadly, you know, there are millions of children today, human embryos that are in liquid nitrogen and that have been orphaned, essentially, because they're not going to be. And so then, you know, the idea is, oh, well, they'll be used for scientific research or maybe they could be adopted. Uh, and all these different ideas are out there. But but practically speaking, there's this enormous injustice that has been done and continues to be done uh, to all these children all over the world. Yeah, that's a, it's an incredible problem that I think it's, I mean, like as a Catholic, what do you do? Like you can't have IVF, but at the same time you have these frozen embryos and what do you do about them? And I feel like people don't really realize enough that there is this great ethical dilemma that it's hard to know how to approach it as a pro-lifer sometimes, I think. Right. Well, and so the big question that has been, you know, on the minds of many, many Catholics right, is the idea of rescuing mm-hmm. these embryos that are in, in cold storage and frozen and the idea of a kind of a prenatal adoption, an embryo adoption. And is this licit or not? And, you know, there are very strong pro-life reasons to say, look, there's been an injustice done here. These children have a right to life like the rest of us. Um, Perhaps they could be adopted and, and brought to life and, and brought to birth. They're already alive. But uh, the question then becomes, is this really licit? And so, you know, interestingly, the, the church has started to address this issue. Um, the, the document Dignitas Personae from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith talked about it and said, look, it is not permissible as a means of overcoming infertility. You can't say, you know, I'm suffering from infertility. I'm going to go adopt an embryo. Uh, again, that's it's, it's considered to be you know the, the wrong path for overcoming infertility, and it, it the document even says that they, these these children these embryos are exposed to an absurd fate because they're there in this frozen limbo in a certain sense right in cold storage and and they're in suspended animation they're still alive but but they're they can't enjoy their life they can't really function uh, so what can be done. And, and it's kind of a question mark that's put out there. And so on the, on the pro-life side, there's like, well, okay, we should in justice bring them to life. And I think the strongest arguments are for couples 
that have their own children that are in cold storage. And, and I think the, the, the necessity of parents to, to do everything they can to, to bring their children to life is a very strong, I would say, powerful, convincing argument that they should try to, to bring them out of cold storage, if, if possible. Um, on the other hand, um, the argument is very strong on the other side, saying, well, wait a second, does this have uh, too close of a connection to the IVF immoral industry, right? You're paying them for these embryos. The, the whole process is not done for free. Mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of supporting that in a certain sense, and you're kind of engaging in a sort of an act of surrogacy, surrogacy which is condemned by the church to carry the child of someone else um, in an artificial process. And it seems like you'd be unintentionally like saying like what you're doing is good in some sense if you were to like buy into the industry that way. That like even if you don't agree with what they're doing by participating, it seems like you're kind of giving it a little bit of a like affirmation, even if it's completely unintentional. Yeah, I mean, there's a scandal aspect that you're you're actively cooperating with an industry that is doing something gravely immoral, mm -hmm. and and even participating in some of the the normal usual procedures that they do, which is impl implanting these embryos. Um, and to me, the argument that I find most compelling, in a sense, is that you know a married couple. The wife, as part of her marital vow, is that she's going to be open to life, but she's really only going to be pregnant from her husband. Um, so you could adopt a child that's already born and bring that child into the family, but to become pregnant with someone else's child has a, has a certain aspect of, of unfaithfulness to the marital vow of, of how that couple's intimate life and, and pregnancy should come about. So to me, that that argues against the embryo adoption, although I realize that the, the pro-life arguments are strong as well. But I do see it as kind of almost a more fundamental issue of, of what is there for the theology of marriage, you know, and, and how a couple should bring a child to life. Um, how does that work with embryo adoption? It seems problematic to me. And you said that the church hasn't given a definitive statement on that, right? Right. So, you know, one of the things that we've noticed in bioethics is that there are a ton, a ton of issues in which the church hasn't 100% pronounced, at which point the faithful are asked to use Catholic principles to, to form themselves, form their consciences, and to make the best decision they can. But science and technology are moving so fast today that what is available and what has been analyzed and, and decided upon by the magisterium of the church, there's a gap. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a gap. And, and some fertility treatments, you know, there's still questions as to whether they're moral or not, you know, and then the church hasn't had 100% embryo adoption, hasn't been decided 100%. Uh, some of the issues um, associated with, you know, kind of um, even, you know, the sort of transhumanist movement, right? So some of these questions about um, changing organs, uh, growing human organs, you know, and animals and things like that it hasn't really been decided by the church. Uh, how how licit and, and in what circumstances it might be done or not done, et cetera. Uh, now, it, it is clear that you're not allowed to transplant, you know, uh, gonads or, or brains. But growing a human heart in a pig, which has been done um, mm -hmm. and then transplanted, that question hasn't really been decided by the church yet. 
there are a lot of questions, you know, how that could be done and, and if it's, it's not 100% clear. So it's an interesting area, right? Because we're used to like having Catholic certitude, right? The catechism is right there and, and you know what's right and wrong. But science and technology are opening up these whole new possibilities, you know, in terms of stem cells. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, the embryonic stem cells that were achieved through killing human embryos could never be used because, again, there was a clearly strong pro-life issue there. But now you've got these stem cells that are being grown from people's own cells, right? The mm -hmm. induced pluripotent stem cells. And, and so those don't have, you know, uh, an intrinsic evil associated with them. Could they be used? Yes. But under what circumstances? You still have to kind of do a moral analysis, right, and, and, and understand. So there are a lot of these cutting-edge issues that, that require some discernment, mm -hmm. but the church hasn't 100%, you know, decided on them yet. So it makes it interesting. Yeah. Is the, are those um, ones that you address, too, on the hotline if someone were – I mean, I guess people don't come up with that issue very often, but, like, if yeah. someone is facing, I guess, like a heart transplant or something and they had the chance to have one that was grown inside of a pig with – that be something that you'd address if they called you up and we said would. like yeah yeah it hasn't happened so far yeah but it but it is interesting to see experimental yeah. treatments yeah so generally speaking those would fall under extraordinary means yes. so you would not be morally obliged to use extraordinary treatments or experimental treatments but you could and under some circumstances again you'd have to really evaluate say you know are the risks less than the benefits and and do i want to try this or not it, it requires a moral analysis and, and, and a certain you know discernment. But, um, we, I mean, we also get questions, kind of crazy ones sometimes, about cremation, for instance. Oh, true. You know, and, and there's these, these new methods of disposing of bodies, which the church is condemning, right, where you kind of liquefy the remains. Or turn them into diamonds or shoot them into space or something All like that. All kinds <laughs> of crazy things that have come out recently. So sometimes we get those questions, you know, and, and we, can, we can help answer those. But um, to me, I mean, the cremation issue is, is real. You know, the, the church is not in favor of cremation. It's, it's allowed um, but really under specific circumstances. So the ordinary means is to be buried. Now, if, if it's a huge financial hardship and the family can't afford a burial and, and so they do cremation for, for financial, it can be justified. If, if the person has a specific horror, you know, and they just like, oh my gosh, I can't stand the thought of my body, you know, rotting, you know, deteriorating, uh, decomposing, et cetera, and, and, and they they have this kind of sense that they want to be cremated because that's that's what they can contemplate. So that that could be an exceptional reason as well, you know, whatever. What about countries but, that don't have a lot of, like, cemetery space? Because I believe, like, Germany has that issue, I believe, where they don't have a ton of, like, would yeah. that be a permissible thing or is that so an area you don't? So there's certain countries where you're only buried for a limited period of time. Yeah. I think and, then, and then you have to re-up, you have to pay to remain underground otherwise they take you out and they put you into a little box somewhere and they reuse the burials plot because they don't have enough space it's kind of crazy from the u.s where we have enough space but there are some countries where that is an issue uh yeah it, it could be a, a circumstance where essentially you know there's a financial hardship to where they don't really have a a true choice and, and then they would have to have a cremation because they can't afford something else uh, so, the, I mean, those issues could be allowable, but I think, unfortunately, people kind of choose it because it's it's cheaper, even though, you know, they really should, if they can afford it, do a normal burial. It's, it, it, um, it seems like it's, it's almost like a, a cultural custom that has come into place 
but but is not one that the church really approves of. You know, so there are some of these things that are like church teaching, and then people don't really realize it. Like like abstaining from meat on Fridays. Mm-hmm. So we all know about Lent, but every Friday of the year we're supposed to abstain from meat, or make another sacrifice. So it's optional. You you don't have to abstain from meat on Fridays, but you're supposed to make another. You know, if you you are having your you know ham sandwich or whatever on a Friday, you're supposed to be making some kind of, and people just uh, completely forget about that, that thing that they're supposed to make some other sacrifice. Uh, the cremation issue is similar, right? The, the ordinary rule is that you're supposed to be buried, and if something, there's a good reason, some kind of exceptional circumstance for cremation, okay, but there are places now where the ordinary thing is to, is to go through cremation. It's, it's sad, I think. Yeah, and I think it's something, like you said, a lot of people don't necessarily realize that there's even a debate about it. They're just... Right told that their relative who's passed away needs to be cremated or they just choose it because it's cheaper. And, right. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they now look at it from a strictly economic perspective as opposed to, I mean, the, the reason why cremation was not allowed at all in the beginning, except in exceptional circumstances. I mean, the church during times of pandemics and other things where there was no, you know, after battles when there was no possibility of, and there was a danger of disease from, from all the bodies, et cetera. So cremation was allowed in those circumstances. But but the idea was people like, you can burn the body because the body has no importance. And mm-hmm. so like Freemasons and others were like, you know, there's no resurrection of the body, et cetera. So you might as well burn them, et cetera. And, and of course, if a person has that attitude and that's why they want the cremation, the church doesn't allow it. Yeah. It would say that as that is a sinful act uh, to deny the resurrection of the body and to have cremation as a symbol of that denial is, is a very sinful act and intention. But but the point, I think, is that people should realize that there is a value to the body and that, you know, having the person buried and have a place that you can go to to pray for the soul of this person is, is very, very helpful because that's the other thing that happens with cremated remains is that they get spread to the wind, all kinds of things, which the church completely condemns, right? If a person is cremated who's a Catholic and they have a specific reason to do so, then, of course, their remains have to be put in a sacred place. Mm-hmm. So in a columbarium, in a cemetery, but not in the closet, you know, or in someone's house or, or spreading their, their ashes someplace. That There should actually be a place to go and pray for that person's soul uh, that's a consecrated space. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Joseph. Is there anything yeah. else that you'd like to say to our listeners or share today or anything? Yeah. Well, I would just like to say, you know, I've worked for many years for Human Life International, and it's, it's such a pleasure uh, to come back. It's great uh, to have you back. Yeah, and, and to be able to uh, to see all the good work that is, continues to be done all over the world. It's uh, it's beautiful to see how HLI has a strong strong presence all over, you know, Latin America and Africa and Asia and Europe, and uh, and then bringing that gospel of life all over the world is is a beautiful beautiful apostolate. So well, and thank you for the work that you do too, because that really helps free people. I mean, all over the world, I guess, but specifically in the Americas, like. Yeah being able to call with those questions that people have, that there is that resource out there that people may or may not know about. Now you know, and you can tell your friends. Yeah, um, ncbcenter.org. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I'll, I'll link it in the description if anyone's curious. Yeah, wonderful. So, well, yeah. thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yeah. Joseph. And to all of our listeners, please like, follow, subscribe to stay connected to the conversation. And if you're listening on our audio platforms, please follow and share with your friends and keep on living the culture of life. God bless. <laughs>